from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the CER podcast. My name is Camino Mortera Martinez. I'm the head of the Brussels office at the CER. And today I'm very lucky to be joined by one of the biggest experts on the rule of law in Europe, John Moring. He's a professor of law in, at the University of Groningen. Um, and also has been working on um, the rule of law for a very long time, including uh, advice in the European Parliament uh, with several reports that the European Parliament's negotiators then use to uh, present before the European Commission. He also knows a little bit about migration, so I might actually ask him something about that, but um, let's see where this conversation goes. So anyway, John, thanks so much for being here again. Hi, thanks for inviting me. So when we decided to have this conversation, um, we thought, okay, let's have a discussion about what back then we thought was the biggest news ever, which was uh, the European Court of Justice ruling on the so-called conditionality mechanism. That is um, something that you will explain us a, a little bit later, but it's related to the rule of law. And uh, we will discuss about it and have this sort of academic conversation, but at the same time explaining our listeners what this is about. To recap, this has been a standoff that has been going on for a number of years, probably since 2014, when Viktor Orban made his famous iliberal democracy speech. But it kind of began at earnest with um, the triggering of something that the Brussels uh, elites used to call the nuclear option. And I think that lots of us missed those times when that was the only nuclear option on the table. And that nuclear option was Article 7 of the Treaty of Lisbon. That article is basically a disciplinary proceeding that says that if a member state does not comply with the values of the European Union, the European Union can actually act to punish that member state with, among other things, suspending its voting rights in the Council. Now, this has happened two times. Once in 2017, that was the Commission triggering Article 7 against Poland, and a second time, 2018, the European Parliament trigger Article 7 against Hungary. None of these proceedings have gone very far for a very simple reason. And that is Article 7 to be actually implemented needs unanimity of all EU 27. So obviously Hungary blocked Poland's proceeding, whereas Poland blocks Hungary's. Yes, thanks a lot, Camino, and thanks again for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, 
So this means that a lot of uh, people have realized that Article 7 is not going to help us very far with solving this rule of law problem. So that's why uh, a focus came to lie more on what the European Commission could do in simply in terms of using its conventional um, uh, instruments in uh, challenging what's going wrong in, uh, in Poland and Hungary, uh, which are also different countries, I'll explain in a minute, uh, simply by bringing infringement uh, uh, procedures. So, for example, it has brought infringement procedures with regard to Hungary about uh, uh, retirement, age lowering of judges uh, already a couple of years ago. Um, it has brought uh, recently cases about uh, um, the way that it has expelled the Central European University, uh, how uh, it has made it much harder uh, for NGOs to be funded from abroad. Uh, in, in both these cases, the European Court of Justice has held uh, that, uh, that that was, in fact, illegal behavior by Hungary. Um, but these judgments have not been properly implemented yet. And more recently, uh, also the, the, the current uh, commission has uh, started infringement procedures about uh, things that relate more to media freedom in, in Hungary uh, for uh, making it much harder for, for free media to uh, renew their licenses uh, or uh, for, uh, for newspapers, uh, for example, to, to make sure that uh, their governmental board is not completely uh, taken over by, uh, by government-appointed uh, people. So that's Hungary. Uh, it's, a, it's a specific set of problems. Poland, the problem is very much uh, focused uh, on uh, judicial independence at the moment. Um, so this has to do with, since law and justice came into power, uh, it has planted a lot of uh, individuals in places where you would expect uh, judges, impartial and independent people, particularly also has started to discipline uh, independent and impartial Polish judges for the very content of their uh, rulings. And the European Court of Justice in increasingly alarmist uh, tone, and I've been into Luxembourg uh, on a number of occasions over the last couple of years, at least four or five times. Uh, so I've, I've sat in on these uh, hearings, which was remarkable because it's not, uh, uh, I've worked on the EU uh, uh, for like 20 years now, and I've never been in court uh, uh, where there was such stiff questioning of a member state. Uh, so the European Court of Justice, in increasingly alarmist stones, has signaled to Poland that, uh, in fact, the way that they're now uh, trying to discipline uh, judges is completely against European Union law. And in fact, that recently even led to the first time ever in a, a 1 million euro penalty a day for keeping intact uh, the so-called disciplinary chamber in the Supreme Court that is basically there to, to make sure that impartial independent judges who do not toe the, the party line, uh, let's say, can be uh, actually uh, suspended and have their salary cut. And that has now happened to about 10 uh, Polish judges. So that is uh, the, the context in which the rule of law conditionality regulation uh, came on top. And I'm sure that we'll have a conversation about that, but that's sort of the, the context uh, of, of the, the why this judgment of uh, 16 February was so important. Thanks so much, John. Um, just so our listeners know, uh, John was indeed in the courthouse while this uh, very important hearing for us um, EU law nerds was happening. And he was an extremely useful uh, source of reliable information on all that was going on. He's also be really active, and I, I, I want to highlight this as well in defending um, the, the visibility also of uh, judges that have been sacked or that have been uh, unduly disciplined uh, by the current Polish government. Um, 
which is, as he was saying before, at the roots of the conflict uh, that uh, the current Polish government has with um, Brussels, obviously Hungary, which is the other uh, country um, facing a procedure, has a different uh, situation because um, if I may um, put it in a nutshell, uh, in a very simple way, um, in Hungary, we have a bigger problem with corruption and the way um, sort of the ruling class, including Viktor Orban, who is seeking re-election on April the 3rd, has been financing themselves. Um, whereas in, in, in Poland, we have a problem with judicial independence. So those are the two problems that the Commission and the European institutions are basically having with the governments in there. Um, so that led us, uh, this uh, rule of law saga that started as, as, as back as, as 2014, uh, that has led us to this important ruling um, that was delivered on February 16th, uh, 2022, before we even thought the war was going to end. <laughs> and um, John, I think there's a lot of confusion. We try here at the CR um, to explain what this ruling is about, what it's not about, and what it means. Um, I think I've, I've done my best, but I think maybe having a second voice trying to explain what it means and what it is would be useful for our listeners. So if you could just give us a little bit of context and then try to explain us what this ruling means. Yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll be happy to do that. So, um, you know, first the context is that this was, uh, this measure was proposed by the previous commission uh, and, uh, uh, the negotiation was concluded under German presidency, uh, under the current uh, commission. Um, and in the course of the negotiation, uh, the, the focus of the instrument was uh, changed from a rule of law instrument to a budgetary protection instrument. Uh, and I'll come in a moment uh, to speak about whether this is a good or a bad thing. Spoiler alert, I think it's an extremely useful uh, thing. But uh, since the, the agreement on this regulation, uh, simply because it's a normal piece of uh, union uh, legislation, uh, only required qualified majority uh, voting, uh, Poland and Hungary are simply outvoted. Uh, but this came very close to the end of uh, making a deal uh, on a lot of things that actually require unanimity, the multi-annual uh, financial framework. Hungary and Poland managed to uh, link these two things uh, and, and, and present this as a package. So there was a very convoluted deal in December 2020, which said that uh, a normal piece of legislation that had been properly agreed would only be applied uh, when the courts would uh, uh, have uh, cleared its legality. And that deal was criticized uh, heavily, this European Council uh, deal, by a lot of scholars, and rightly so. Uh, uh, but uh, this was the way that uh, uh, eventually uh, uh, it, it had to happen to, to uh, clear that block uh, in the road. Um, so that means that meant that Hungary and Poland, uh, as was already announced uh, in the European Council conclusions, which was itself uh, remarkable, challenged the legality of this uh, regulation before the European Court of Justice. Uh, and the European Court of Justice, there's a couple of elements that uh, make clear how important the Court of Justice itself thought this case was. First of all, it granted the request for expedited procedure, which is thus, thus uh, very rarely, only normally does that when there's actually individual uh, well-being at stake, for example, in, in asylum cases or in, in cases that deal with uh, people who are uh, imprisoned. It also decided to, to uh, um, uh, deal with this case in full court, uh, which is also extremely uh, rare uh, and quite a sight. As I uh, 
as I told you, uh, as you told your listeners earlier, I was actually present uh, and uh, it just takes about three minutes for all uh, judges to arrive uh, behind their table anyway. So that's a, that's a remarkable sound of justice uh, taking place. And what was also uh, remarkable was that uh, 10 member states uh, supported uh, the, the, Europe, the, the European Parliament and the Council of Ministers as the co-legislators, uh, as well as the commission that had uh, originally proposed uh, this. And uh, It wasn't just any member states, it was the big hitters. It was uh, France, uh, it was Germany, it was Spain, uh, the Benelux uh, countries, uh, the Nordics. And particularly that Germany was there, that France was there, that Spain uh, was there. Uh, you know better than me, Camino. Uh, some are more equal than others, and Germany is definitely one of, of them. So that made a big difference also on the court. So Hungary and Poland were completely isolated uh, in, in their um, in their uh, standpoint. So, so what was the case about, and how was it decided? Do you want me to immediately explain that, Camino? Yes, I basically I think that what would be really useful for our listeners is to understand what this conditionality mechanism with this horrible name um, actually does and um, what were if we could summarize uh, and could help with that as well uh, if we could summarize sort of the 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 arguments and why they were kind of bonkers (laughs) from Hungary and Poland and then what the court said and why this is important moving forward that would be useful for the listeners yeah absolutely so what were the arguments the first argument was that the legal base, and that's of course always uh, what all cases in the European Court of Justice are about, the legal base that was used in this case, uh, which was Article 322 of the of the Treaty on the Functioning of the, uh, the European Union, which is about uh, uh, the budget. Uh, that is not uh, actually a, a correct legal base, because according to Poland and Hungary, uh, it's not about the budget at its core, it's about the rule of law, and the rule of law, in fact, uh, is completely dominated only by one procedure, and that is the Article 7 procedure that I just uh, uh, explained uh, to, uh, to everyone already. Uh, so that was the first argument. The second argument uh, for them was that uh, there's too vague language. In, uh, the, the language in the, in the regulation is too vague uh, in the sense that it introduces a lot of criteria, particularly about uh, when uh, the budget that flows through uh, to... to uh, uh, Poland and Hungary can be uh, suspended uh, when that can happen, and it gives too much power, in fact, uh, to the to the Commission. That's what uh, the, the the Polish and Hungarian government said. So, what does the wording of the regulation actually say? It says that in case uh, that uh, uh, problems, uh, uh, specific problems that uh, uh, deal with uh, the, the rule of law and that have a direct impact on the sound financial management of uh, EU funds. And these, and there's basically three categories of pre-selected rule of law problems from that angle. It's basically about when the authorities in the, in the member states uh, that deal with uh, the, making sure that uh, EU monies get properly uh, distributed in, in, in the member state, do not properly monitor uh, that this is done in, in a proper way uh, and a legal way. Uh, for example, you mentioned corruption in, in Hungary. Indeed, corruption levels with EU money in Hungary are about 10 times as high as the runner-up in that uh, unfortunate list of Olaf. <laughs> uh, so that so that is the first uh, that is the first element. The second element is then that if indeed there are suspicions of corruption, that there should be an independent prosecutor that investigates this independently. And the third is that 
if such an independent prosecutorial uh, activity leads to a a suspicion that indeed there has been uh, corruption, that there should also be an impartial independent court that looks at this. These are the very specific uh, uh, three elements of the rule of law that he can really think of as uh, they follow in a a logical order from when uh, money flows into a member state when corruption could be discovered, when it could be prosecuted, and when eventually a court could look like. So the wording of the yeah, so so the wording of the regulation says that if uh, if there's uh, a problem, um, uh, such a rule of law problem that I just described that affects or risk risks affecting the sound financial management in a sufficiently direct way. So there's uh, several different elements there, uh, and I'll come to why this is important to the the court's ruling in a second. First of all, there needs to be, uh, it either has to affect or risk affecting uh, the sound financial management of EU money. Effect uh, is basically reactive, and that is really uh, already very much uh, a mechanism that is present in current financial instruments. Uh, that basically means I, I give you 100 euros, you end up uh, spending it in a way that is fishy, I can ask it back. That is basically the current uh, mechanism. Uh, but uh, uh, what this regulation brings in addition to that is that I've now borrowed you 100 euros three times in a row. Every time there's going something wrong when I borrow 100 euros to Camino, uh, you know, there's a risk that this affects uh, uh, my, my spending. So rather than giving you another 100 euros, I first want you to get your act together and, and do your... Uh, so that is that is new. That's a proactive uh, element uh, there. But I still then need to ensure, and that is the second uh, element, that it uh, affects uh, the, my, my, uh, my goal, which is sound financial management in a sufficiently direct way. What does that mean? So Poland and Hungary, to go back to their arguments, uh, so this introduces way too many elements that uh, are uh, unclear. Uh, because, uh, you know, what is a risk? What is a seriously sufficiently direct way? So their argument was that uh, the way that this instrument is now being drafted uh, not only is uh, based on the wrong uh, legal basis because it's not a, a budget instrument, it's a rule of law instrument and rule of law is completely dominated by Article 7. Also, it's, uh, uh, it's a problem with legal certainty because it's unclear uh, when this is triggered and that, uh, sort of, uh, that is sort of arbitrary. Uh, so that is an argument that they made. And the last uh, argument that they made uh, was that, listen, uh, uh, even, even if this is applied, we, we have no idea beforehand uh, whether we're going to be uh, 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 fined, in my example, of 100 euros uh, by, by 5 euros or by 100 euros. Who, who decides this and by what criteria? That's basically what the discussion in the court uh, was about. So to just go through each of these elements uh, of the court ruling, if you want me to. Uh, so first, the, the, the European Court of Justice said uh, Article 322 is a, a clear legal basis. Uh, it's a sufficient legal basis uh, because the, 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 the regulation says very clearly the overarching goal is uh, the protection of uh, the budget of the EU. Therefore, the, the, the name of the regulation itself is uh, uh, Quite important official name. We always call it rule of law condition, uh, rule of law conditionality mechanism. But in fact, it's called uh, the regulation on a general regime of conditionality for the protection of the union budget. So that element is very much in the title and not the rule of law. So that that element, uh, you know, the, the legal basis is is fine. Um, the second element was uh, it's it's not. Uh, we, we, we see that uh, uh, what the specific threats to the union budget uh, that are dealt with in this regulation are rule of law related, the three elements that I described uh, earlier. 
but that does not mean uh, that uh, and that is impossible for a union legislator to do because in fact uh, and the argument that article 7 sort of monopolizes rule of law uh, uh, regulation uh, is frivolous why because it has a completely different purpose and scope the european court of justice said under the regulation that we're now discussing in fact if i close the tab to camino it, this is not a penalty this is a major measure of of, of uh, proper financial management but if if i would apply article 7 uh, uh, to a member state that would actually be a penalty so it distinguishes uh, uh, these two uh, elements as well um, and the, and the purpose of the the, the the article 7 procedure is really to discuss uh, article uh, to rule of law elements uh, in their full width well, the regulation only mentions three very specific elements that are directly uh, linked to, uh, uh, you know, simply cash being uh, uh, being a proper accountant. So there, the the, the Court of Justice uh, also put that argument to uh, to a side. So you know, it's perfectly fine for a union legislator to uh, to specify specific elements of the rule of law in a specific instrument of of uh, uh, union law. It's just to. To, to take it back to um, sort of the conversation in the streets, right? So I have two different sort of conversations in the streets. The ones are with, the, one of them is with people who have uh, no clue about European Union stuff, um, like my parents back home or mm -hmm. uh, my friends through WhatsApp. And the other one is with all these people uh, who work on EU stuff in Brussels in here. And I thought it was remarkable that both groups of people actually thought that this ruling meant that as of the 16th of February 2022, the European Union was able to tell Poland and Hungary what to do, what values to apply, what is the rule of law, and if they didn't, uh, they, the, the money tap would be off. And I thought that was a very distorted um, view of reality. So I wanted to know um, whether you agree with me, but I also know that um, you have a um, sort of a complementary vision on this, uh, that this is not only uh, about a budget, that it could actually mean to some um, uh, significant reforms when it comes to the rule of law in these and other countries which might want to toy with illiberal ideas in the future. Is that correct? Absolutely, Camino. I'm going to give a very loyally answer, going uh, with starting with it on the one hand and, and, uh, and going on with it on the other. Uh, on the one hand, I agree with you uh, in, in the sense that uh, uh, it has been misrepresented, the, 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 the scope and the purpose of this regulation. Uh, this is not uh, an instrument that will uh, impose values on, uh, let's, let's just name them, Poland and, and Hungary. Uh, uh, it's also not uh, going to solve problems with uh, very restrictive views on LGBTI, uh, uh, etc. This is a, a budgetary protection instrument. Um, so in my view, some of the scholarly comments on this regulation are trying to project their general disappointment with how the Commission has uh, dealt with rule of law uh, problems on this specific instrument that has a very uh, narrow uh, uh, focus. So in that sense, I agree with you. But uh, I also uh, want to add something to, to that. And now I'm coming to my on the other uh, hand. Uh, you know, this uh, instrument is very explicitly meant to come on top of uh, uh, all the other uh, uh, EU financial instruments. 
And these EU financial instruments I already uh, explained to you uh, go on the logic that if I borrow, uh, if I give you one on the euros, and in the process uh, of spending that, if you eventually send me the little bills, and I think that uh, some something has been misspent, I can um, uh, ask it back. So that's a reactive, very labor-intensive thing. Uh, this thing is uh, proactive, and the reason why that is uh, relevant is that uh, it uh, obliges EU institutions to be much more uh, sort of uh, uh, comprehensive and overarching in their assessment of what's happening in these member states. Uh, and what's happening in these member states, if we look at these very specific uh, uh, three elements of uh, having a proper monitoring system in your financial authorities, uh, proper corruption, uh, prosecution, and and, uh, and and judicial independence. These things, in my view, are, uh, by definition, cannot be limited only to the union budget. The reason is the following. It's very difficult to think of a, uh, of a reality on the ground when there would only be uh, corruption with purely national money and uh, the way that EU monies are uh, being spent is uh, really... A sort of finish level, pure and well done. It's the same with uh, prosecution. It's very uh, difficult to think of a system where the prosecutor would be uh, completely lacking behind only with regards to uh, EU funding, not the other way around. So you cannot be a partial independent uh, judge uh, being, uh, or a part-time independently uh, independent judge that is only uh, independent in the national context and not in the EU context or the other way around. So in my view, the, the type of things that specifically focus uh, on making sure that uh, we get the bang for our European Union buck, by definition, are uh, overarching. And that's the reason why I, I am quite optimistic that this instrument, and particularly the preventative effect that will come uh, from this, in that, um, uh, you know, uh, this will change the political calculus at home of these uh, governments because uh, this will really mean something to their electorates if they cannot uh, bring back uh, the cash, uh, which is basically the whole legitimacy of the of, of their participation in the EU. Uh, they will have to solve the structural issues uh, uh, to get that cash, even if it's a very narrow instrument. That's precisely the genius of this instrument, uh, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the argument of you can't be a little pregnant um, kind of thing. At exactly. the same time, um, if I if I may just um, chime in with, with, with some thoughts, at the same time, I also think that there is a risk, but this is the case with any sort of uh, procedure, whether it's a disciplinary procedure, sort of like an infringement procedure that the commission takes these uh, countries to court, or that it it's, um, sort of like stops the money, these kind of things that this sanction, so to speak, which is a very um, trendy word these days, um, ends up um, sort of alienating uh, voters in, in Poland, in Hungary, in, 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 in Romania, whatever, because I, I want to stress that um, this regulation, of course, applies to any uh, and all member states, and so do um, all the other rule of law instruments. We're talking about mo mostly Poland and Hungary because these are the countries that have indeed Article 7 procedures that have had infringement procedures that have had um, a long standoff with the Commission. But then we also have some issues with Romania at the moment. And I'm sure that, um, well, this might not be the end of the whole thing. So I think um, there is a risk um, that this um, backfires somehow. And, and I think it's very difficult uh, for the Commission and the EU institutions to actually tread carefully 
in order to be um, to be sure that citizens there don't see this as a punishment, a punishment to them, but see the purpose of this whole this whole thing. Uh, because remember as well that the Commission um, so far has not approved um, the recovery funds for either Poland and Hungary. Um, well, officially for no reason because we don't have an official uh, reason, but unofficially because of course the recovery fund includes a lot of benchmarks on judicial independence and monitoring of money and stuff, which uh, the commission believes uh, Hungary and Poland are not necessarily um, well, um, applying right now. Now, I think um, this has been really nice. And this has been a conversation that we might have been able to have like two or three weeks ago, and then it would end here, right? Um, and um, that's enough problems, I think to end uh, a conversation. But unfortunately, we are not in the same world that we were uh, two or three weeks ago. Uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine changed a lot of things, not least uh, European politics. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just like, I, the business of making predictions based on the fact that we know the European Union so well because we studied it and we work on it for like 10 to 20 years has gone completely bust. Uh, in the past couple of weeks. So it's very difficult to know what's going to happen and how. But John, what do you think will be the impact of what's happening in Ukraine um, in the actual internal debates on the rule of law um, between yeah, Poland, Hungary, or Romania, whatever, and, and Brussels? I, I, I'm just thinking like, um, you know, because this war is just going so fast, uh, at the beginning of it, we were all like, yeah, you know, Poland, Hungary, everybody's toe in the line and, and, and they're going to be really supportive. And whatever, I just saw Morawiecki yesterday um, night uh, coming out to complain about the sanctions and demanding that the European Union does more. Uh, so there's already a confrontation there. And I just wonder, what's your view? So what's going to happen? Uh, you know, can the commission, will the commission um, you know, apply this conditionality mechanism quads funds uh, to Poland in particular, which obviously needs money at the moment to deal with the refugee question. Uh, how will the whole thing change in your view? Yeah, if, if I knew that, uh, I, I will probably get, uh, <laughs> get paid much better than as a professor in, in Groningen. I can just speculate a little bit with you as educated uh, uh, guests. Uh, I think we just have to uh, start with stating the obvious, uh, which are two elements. First, if if anything, uh, the Russian invasion of a democracy uh, in, in Ukraine uh, actually drives home more than any economic or any conversation that you and me would have. What is the intrinsic value of having a stable liberal democracy and, and the intrinsic value of uh, uh, working together as liberal democracies and projects uh, what is most dear to us, which is simply uh, the stability uh, in, in our societies. So that militates very much in favor of uh, uh, actually doubling down on making sure that all of the member states uh, with which uh, we work together remain liberal democracies and therefore doubling down on simply ensuring what is already legally binding uh, in, the, in the EU setting. On the other hand, uh, you know, we just have to give credit where credit is due, and that is particularly in Poland. Uh, and 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 I'm I'm not sure whether to, to what extent it is really the Polish government, but specifically Polish citizens, uh, fellow EU citizens from Poland, 
who have stepped up to the plate uh, in, in this particular case uh, in a way that I don't think that uh, uh, any other uh, fellow EU citizens would have uh, in, in that case. You can only give them credit uh, for that. So your question is very much, how are these two things linked? Uh, um, you started already by saying that uh, you know if if you want to be so generous and rightly so, uh, like the, the, our fellow Polish EU citizens, and you notice that I'm talking about the citizens, not about the government. Uh, 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 you you want to make sure that they uh, get access to the cash that they are entitled to, also on the recovery uh, fund, right? Uh, and that recovery funding is now blocked because there were country-specific recommendations that were premised on the basis. That you only get cash if you have a stable judiciary and you do not attack your judiciary because otherwise it's simply not a safe investment whatever you, we give you or you we, we borrow you that argument has not gone away uh, and in fact it can now very much uh, work uh, against the polish government that rather than us demanding something from them namely simply to get their act together and stop punishing judges for the content of their uh, rulings they're going to have to ask something from us namely will you help us uh, relocate these 500,000 uh, and the clock and, and the amount is only getting higher uh, in, in the EU. Uh, so I think that uh, the framing now very much is that uh, uh, we will have to go soft uh, on rule of law with Poland uh, simply to help them out. I think that could also be very much flip the other direction. Uh, Poland uh, and the Polish society and Polish citizens are very soon uh, going to find out that after the three months uh, uh, visa-free travel on day 91 uh, of all these Ukrainian uh, uh, refugees who, who, who go there, uh, they will have to be relocated. And why would uh, other member states relocate, uh, agree, uh, you know, unconditionally to such relocation demands by uh, Poland in this case, if we know that uh, they uh, sort of put aside other uh, obligations that are incumbent on them, for example, uh, to simply get rid of this disciplinary chamber. Uh, so uh, it's very difficult for me to predict where uh, that discussion is going, but I, I definitely don't buy the one-sided uh, uh, speculation here that simply because they're helping uh, the Ukrainians out on behalf of all of the EU, which they should do, uh, and which I'm extremely grateful for, uh, it's not that that means that uh, immediately all the other demands uh, that are simply based on binding EU law, and let's not forget uh, a number of binding European Court of Justice rulings and even penalties that are uh, now being paid on a daily basis. These are self-inflicted harms by the Polish uh, government. So if they want to get rid of, uh, if they want to uh, free up uh, a million a day, you can just get rid of this disciplinary chamber. You know, you can also argue it in that way. So uh, I, uh, that that would be my first reflection. Can I can I um, yeah. can I question that um, reflection on the basis that um, Poland has been um, welcoming Ukrainian refugees much much before this crisis started. So that's something that um, it's important to take into account. Uh, whatever the government's uh, anti anti migrant rhetoric uh, has been, obviously. We know um, that it's not the same, unfortunately, uh, at the moment to welcome uh, predominantly white, predominantly friendly, um, predominantly uh, Russian and Ukrainian speakers um, to your country when you have bounds, like you have, um, sorry, uh, bounds with them historically and otherwise than to welcome people from other parts of the world. So that's very clear. However, I think what the Commission is currently 
proposing and the, the, the EU member states are supposed to be actually approving today, Thursday. Um, it's a temporary uh, protection mechanism that will allow those, um, well, millions of Ukrainian refugees at these rates to actually decide and choose where they want to go. Many of them will stay in Poland. Some of them will go to other countries like Romania, but a lot of them will also go to Germany, Italy, and Spain because there are huge Ukrainian diasporas there. And as far as I know, those three countries have agreed to welcome those refugees. So I don't think, this is, this is my personal view, I don't think that in, at this early stage of the crisis, the question of relocation, as in like compulsory relocation, will come up. Now, I don't know what's going to happen if we are faced with 7 million refugees as uh, some like really um, high up estimates, um, you know, um, say. I also don't know what's going to happen on day 91 or on day, uh, you know, 350, because obviously Ukrainians don't have, um, don't have to apply for a visa. That's something that is important to remember. So they can stay visa free uh, for three months in the European Union. So it's much more easy than for other, um, for other um, asylum seekers. And this temporary uh, mechanism would actually grant them uh, protection without having to go through asylum um, applications or anything. But that's assuming, and that's the name temporary tells you this, that's assuming that this is going to be a temporary situation and that they will be able to go back to a country that they clearly love since they are dying for it, right? Um, but we are in the middle of a, an emergency crisis and we're not necessarily thinking long-term. What if this war you know, becomes a low intense conflict that drags on for years? What's gonna to happen to these people? And that's where you know, the European Union will actually have to go beyond this Bia Schaffendas moments that we're having now. And mm. we will have to think, what are we going to do with these people who we granted protection up to three years but then this war has been going on for five or whatever, for like a low intensity conflict. Um, so I think that's, that's uh, a risk that we might have. And I think that uh, we are in early days, so it's very difficult to predict what's happening. Um, but I think the dynamics um, have become really interesting, in, if only because uh, seeing Morawiecki going around there and praising, singing the praises of the European Union um, has been a, a, a welcome uh, Side, uh, for me at least um, yeah I don't think we have a lot of time left um, so I don't know John if you want to say something um, to close it up um, yeah I, I just want to bring this I, I, I completely agree with your reflections uh, on, on, on that uh, I just want to uh, do one thought experiment uh, and, and, and bring it back to the how this relates to the, the regulation imagine that Moria Vecchi is um, successful in his lobby to unlock the COVID funds. Uh, and, and this 36 billion go there, uh, you know, including to make sure that the, uh, uh, the Polish society is now uh, able to, to process better the enormous influx. It's important uh, to realize that uh, the regulation that, that we were discussing earlier in the podcast applies both to the normal budget and to uh, COVID funding. So it it, this also means that the proactive preventative aspect uh, of, of, of the regulation will continue to apply to future tranches under the COVID funding. Um, 
And it's also also the reactive element to it. If there's just a, a, an effect that is uh, on, on the budget of uh, uh, the, the enduring problem with judicial independence in, in, uh, in Poland, uh, it could also be clawed back at a later stage. So it doesn't mean that if we now release the funding to Poland, uh, it's sort of uh, uh, out of out of our uh, uh, reach forever at all. We're only talking about the first stage, which is uh, the, that it's preventatively blocked. And the second element I wanted to introduce, and that will then be my final remark. I think that the experience with these 36 billion uh, now being blocked in Poland is a very clear example that pressure works. Uh, it would have been completely unimaginable that the president of uh, Poland, Duda, would have come uh, up with any sort of uh, uh, proposal to try and unlock the situation and, and get rid of the disciplinary chamber in, in, in the Supreme uh, Court, uh, if it were not for these 36 billion. Uh, it's, uh, it's a bit like the mouse and the elephant. We think that uh, this was all done by, caused by this 1 million euro a day fine. Uh, but uh, the, that is the mouse. The elephant in the background is the 36 billion. Uh, so this means that uh, pressure works. And that is also very uh, important in terms of realizing the potential effect of uh, the rule of law regulation in the future. And that effect is not so much in its use, but uh, its actual existence and the threats uh, that if I borrow Camino on the coast, uh, that, uh, you know, that will be a different uh, type of uh, dynamic in, in the future. And that is a a huge improvement even beyond uh, uh, what's now currently sadly happening in Ukraine. So I hope that uh, I just wanted to link it back uh, to, to our previous discussion. Great, thanks so much, John. Um, I promise you listeners that I'm not borrowing money from John on a daily basis. Um, <laughs> I mean, you can, you can uh, fund my um, addiction to handbags and shoes if you want but I don't think I don't think that's the that's the purpose of it but anyway um thanks so much John this has been really really interesting and really refreshing um in a in a week of um crazy news uh to reflect back a little bit on what's happening uh behind the scenes and and uh, to explain something that is not necessarily very clear uh which is the conditionality mechanism how this affects uh things moving forward Thank you very much, John, and thanks so much to everybody listening. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.